Okay, friends, for those of you who are wondering why my leg, my foot is, or, or rather why I have this very interesting sense of fashion this morning, one sandal, one formal. Huh? Um, if you're wondering why, I, I know it's because you didn't attend service last week. <laughs> but no, it's okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your concern. Um, I had a, a minor operation done to remove a plantar wart, probably, but also called a corn, whatever. So there's like a huge, not, ho not huge, la, there's a hole in my foot, okay, so it was healing. Uh, last week, I still had to walk on the edge and, and I had to use crutches to get around, so it was a little difficult. But uh, thankfully, the last time I changed my dressing, uh, they gave me this little cotton donut to put my weight on, so at least I can somewhat walk and limp. Yeah, so thank you, thank you for your concern. Thank you for those of you who have been praying. Uh, I pray it, it heals quick. It's quite a, a big inconvenience. But thank God it is healing. Yeah, it's healing. Uh, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you give us your word and you reveal yourself and your will to us. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask that you will align our hearts towards all that you have for us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, I wonder how many of you have witnessed an injustice before. Go or not. Have you witnessed an injustice before? Huh, I thought there'll be more. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure... If you think a little bit, you can think of quite some obvious examples. Uh, let me just share one example of injustice. Don't worry, I won't share a ton. Uh, moving on to one example from my own life, uh, this happened when I was very young, probably about seven or eight years old. And my parents woke up one morning to find that their car had... had moved somehow about 10 feet away from where they had parked it and it was at the edge of a steep slope in our garden. So we were staying in this place where there was like a large gardenish thing and there's like a, a bit of a hill. Huh? So if the car rolls down the hill, it will smash into the fence, right? So it hadn't yet, but it was at the edge. And its brakes were not engaged. I don't know how it got there. Maybe... It, it rolled there on its own. Uh, gardener moved it out of the way in order to do something I don't know. Uh, but because I was quite strong for my age, my parents asked me to prove my strength. They asked me, hey, if you can push the car, I will give you 50 ringgit. Uh, back then, 50 ringgit is a lot of money, you know. This is like almost 20 years. No. Almost 30 years, <laughs> almost 30 years ago, 50 ringgit is a lot of money, especially for a seven, eight-year-old. Huh? So, uh, I, I wasn't very smart. I didn't put two and two together. I didn't wonder, why are you offering me 50 bucks to prove my strength? Huh? But I, I thought, okay, lah. Uh, I'm strong. Okay, let me try. Uh, of course, I wanted the 50 ringgit. Guess what happened? Can you guess? I, I managed to push the car. Um, I mean, no brakes, but uh, yeah, I didn't get the 50 ringgit. 
Okay, I didn't get the 15 ringgit. Instead, I got the blame for being the one who pushed the, the car near the slope. Until today, it is a mystery. We have no idea how the car got all the way there. I think I told my parents when I was an adult lah, that I was still innocent. I, I don't know whether they believe me. Lah. Um, but I can remember almost 30 years later that I was a victim of injustice and it did not feel good. Uh, that's why even 30 years later, I still can remember very, very clearly all the details because I was a victim of injustice. Now, today we're looking at something a little less trivial than my own personal experience of injustice, and we are looking at Paul's experience of injustice as we continue our sermon series through the book of Acts. And our big idea today our takeaway message is that disciples of Jesus keep God at the centre of their response to injustice. Okay, so we forget everything. Remember this. Disciples of Jesus, followers of Christ, Christians, keep God at the centre of their response to injustice. Now, last week, uh, we looked at Acts chapter 19 and the riot at Ephesus. Sorry, this is a little small. It's just... The green line is just tracing uh, Paul's third missionary journey. Lah, okay? And so, if you can remember, just before this riot almost happens, uh, Paul was already planning to head to Macedonia. And when the city clerk finally dismissed the mob, Paul finally could leave. Okay? He left for Macedonia. After spending some time in Greece and a few more cities, he headed towards Jerusalem. Okay, so up till now, his home base for all his missionary journeys has been Antioch. Uh, he will usually return back to Antioch. But this time, he felt called to go to Jerusalem, and so he headed to Jerusalem. But when Paul got to Jerusalem, it wasn't very long until another mob formed, another crowd that wanted him dead. Okay? Last week, we saw that that crowd, that riot was caused by the Gentiles. They were losing money, right? Because uh, people accepted the gospel. They were turning away from idolatry. So they were uh, making the, the, the idol makers uh, lose business. This week, the cause of the, the, the crowd, stirring up the, those stirring up the crowd, were the Jewish opponents from the various cities that Paul had been preaching in. And so if you remember from his very first missionary journey, even one of the first few cities that he's first set out to, Jewish, uh, there, there were Jews who opposed his teaching and they would follow him and, and stir up trouble. And so this is what, uh, these, these are the people who were stirring up trouble today. And so Paul had been facing opposition from these Jewish opponents for a few years by now. And so they were claiming, they, they were telling the, the people of Jerusalem that Paul was teaching everyone everywhere against the Jews, against the Jewish law, and against the temple, the Jewish temple. On top of that, they had seen one of Paul's Gentile companions from Ephesus with him earlier. So they saw them walking around town somewhere. And then after that, they saw Paul at the temple. They assumed that this Gentile from Ephesus was also with Paul in the temple. And that was a big no-no lah. Okay, so they jumped to conclusions. And so they seized Paul. They started beating him to death, basically. 
And the Roman commander of the city heard the chaos, okay, because everybody is in an uproar, you know, people shouting, huge commotion. And, and so they, uh, he, he quickly grabbed some soldiers and they, they headed to the mob to try to restore order. And he found that Paul was being ganged up on by the crowd. Lah. Everyone was beating up on him. Now, when you see a bunch of citizens beating up on one man, usually the, the, the first assumption is that the person being beat up uh, has done something wrong to deserve it. Lah. Okay. Of course, that is not... Uh, we, we should not be resorting to violence right? and, and uh, doing our own vigilante justice. But that's the automatic perception that if there's a bunch of people... Ordinary citizens, not a gang, huh? okay? Ordinary citizens beating one person, uh, you, you would think that, that that person had something, uh, did something to deserve it. For example, uh, a, a, a guy snatches the back of an old lady, causes her to fall into a drain. I think this has happened before. Um, and, and, you know, people see it happen, they chase after that person, they catch him. Uh, one guy tackles him, sits on him, everyone else beats him up, okay? And then people from nearby, maybe the, the shops nearby, eating at the restaurant nearby, they hear, hey, what, what's going on? Oh, this person uh, steal from an old lady and then she's badly injured. Uh, then they come and join also. Okay, so this, you, you, can, you can imagine this sort of thing happening. So something like that, uh, this, this would have been the Roman commander's perception. So the commander asked Paul, what have you done to deserve this, right? And once again like what had happened in Ephesus, is just chaos. Okay, different people are shouting one thing, different people are shouting another thing. Uh, no one knows what the real story is. And so Paul is taken away, and just before he is about to be locked up somewhere, he asked the commander if he could speak to the crowd, because up until now, he had not been able to say anything, right? Because people are just shouting everywhere. Now, just very quickly, if you're wondering about verse 38 that was read just now, right, the Roman commander asked Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt, let 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So, if you just read this from the Bible without context, you'd be wondering, Apanila, right? Uh, there, there was an Egyptian, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, recorded right, that there was an Egyptian uh, false messianic prophet so basically, a, a false prophet who claimed to have a, a messiah sort of status uh, that had led a few thousand men to the Mount of Olives, okay? And he claimed that he could bring down the walls of Jerusalem at his command and capture the city, overthrow you know, the, the authorities there, capture the city. And so the Roman governor at the time, Felix, uh, managed to put down this rebellion, okay? And captured or killed uh, quite a few of these Egyptians' followers. But the Egyptian himself managed to, managed to escape. Okay, so this happened roughly about three years before today's passage. Okay, so the, the Roman commander thought, you know, maybe, maybe the, this, this Paul is uh, the Egyptian who had escaped because he speak, spoke to him in Greek, right, which is the international language. And so maybe the, the crowd is beating him up for some reason. Uh, because he, he led his followers to be captured or killed. Anyway, uh, Paul says, no, he's a Jew from Tarsus, which is a city of good reputation. And so, 
the, the commander allows him to speak to the crowd. Paul then starts to speak in Aramaic, which is a common language of most of the Jews there, and it gets their attention okay, because they didn't expect someone who spoke against their, their people, their law and their temple to be a Jew himself. Okay? And then Paul does something interesting. He says, brothers and, and fathers, listen now to my defense. Okay? He calls this his defense. So basically, he gets their attention and then he says, I'm going to give you my defense. All right? But he doesn't talk about, if you read the rest of uh, Acts 22, uh, he doesn't talk about how he's innocent of the accusations. He doesn't talk about how, you know, he hasn't been teaching against the laws, uh, against the Jews, against the Jewish law, against the temple. He hasn't brought any Gentiles into the temple. He doesn't mention those things. Instead, he starts telling his testimony about how he had persecuted Christians before, how he had encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, how he had become a follower of this Jesus, and then how he had been sent out to proclaim the gospel, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. But before he can continue any further, when he mentions Gentiles, the crowd cannot tahan. So they, they start their uproar again. Uh, Paul is taken away to be imprisoned, and the, the Roman commander tries to you know, find out uh, what have you done, wants to extract information by um, torture, okay, flogging. Uh, but Paul informs the commander he's a Roman citizen, so they can't flog him without going through a proper trial. And so that is the end of that episode. Uh, okay? His story will continue over the next few weeks. But today, I wanted to, to look at this whole episode that we've just gone through and see what we can learn about how Paul responded to injustice. Because if you think about it, what had Paul done to deserve any of this, to deserve how he had been treated? What had, what, what had he done to deserve the beatings, uh, the, the accusations, the imprisonment, the threat of torture? Nothing, all right? They were mainly going by false accusations. Paul had not attacked the Jews or Gentiles. He only preached the gospel. And everyone was free to accept or reject the gospel. Like, you know, the Jewish, his Jewish opponents that were accusing him, they rejected the gospel. They were free to do so. So Paul was experiencing injustice once again as he faced the mob and, and Roman injustice, despite doing nothing to deserve it. This is not just the only time. This is just one of many, 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 many times uh, throughout his entire life after he came to know Christ. Now, now that we've set the background, let's look at... Um, so if you're want, worrying about time, uh, don't worry, only two points this one, okay? Two quick lessons that we can learn from uh, today's passage about responding to injustice. And firstly, I want us to look at the, the matter of injustice and putting it into perspective. Okay? Now, the presence of injustice, the fact that, there, that injustice happens in this world is a fact of life. We see this at many levels, sometimes at a societal level, 
where different, uh, different economic groups, different social classes uh, have more rights than others, more power than others. Sometimes it happens at a racial or religious level, so especially in our nation, uh, there, are, there, there may be different uh, races, different religions that get different sort of privileges or, or different uh, experience, different uh, standards and that sort of thing. Other times, uh, it's at a more personal level where we ourselves feel like, eh, people are doing wrong against us, right? We are innocent victims. And all these injustices are the result of sin. Okay, so from the very beginning of history, mankind has been finding all sorts of ways to exploit one another for their own self-interest. The strong exploits the weak, the rich exploits the poor, and so on. Okay, so injustice has been happening from the dawn of time because sin has been present uh, from the dawn of time. Well, not dawn of time, uh, since, you know, Adam and Eve. Uh, gave in to temptation. And Ecclesiastes chapter 5 makes this observation as a fact of life. Right? That if you see the poor oppressed, if you see justice and rights denied, do not be surprised. Because even to the extent of uh, the, the, the king who is supposed to protect his people, the king who is supposed to be the one preventing injustice from happening. The king is the one who takes advantage and the king is the one who uh, commits the injustice. That, that's the context, right? So, in this sinful world, injustice is a sad fact of life. But on top of that, generally, injustice is something that we also expect, particularly when we are holy and we are set apart for God. Some of you uh, may have experienced injustice because you tried to do the right thing, right? Because you're a Christian, you have, a Christ you have Christian values, you are taught right and wrong, you are taught uh, what you should, should not do in a certain situation. And so maybe you did something like you, uh, your, your boss asked you to uh, help him with something that was not honest or something that would, would put you in the wrong and you stood up to him and you said no, right? And so because of that, you might have been sidelined for promotion, you might have been you know, given OT without pay, uh, no, not OT, you, you have been forced to work overtime without OT uh, or all sorts of things or, or the, your boss just makes your life at the company miserable. And so, injustice can happen particularly because we are set apart from the rest of the world and we are called to be holy. Jesus himself tells his disciples to expect all sorts of injustices simply because we follow him, simply because we identify with him and he experienced all sorts of injustices as well. And so if our Lord experienced injustice, his followers can expect the same. So if injustice is a foregone conclusion, what hope do we have? What hope do we have for justice in this world? Do we just throw up our hands and say, it's like that, lah. everybody is corrupt, unfair, uh, unjust, no, no point, right? 
just like that. Well, the good news is that we don't believe in a God who just created the world, washed His hands and went off and just let His creation destroy itself, right? Our God is a God of perfect justice who cares very deeply about all injustices that are ever committed. And because of mankind exercising his free will to continue sinning in many ways, despite that, despite God caring so deeply about matters of injustice in this world, injustice continues to persist because of the sinfulness of mankind. But despite that, God is still sovereign. He continues to work against injustice. And he calls his people to do the same thing. He calls his people who are made in his image people who will conform to his likeness, people who share his values, to also work against injustice. That's why the Bible is full and full of commands, not just don't commit injustice. The Bible is full of commands to, to, for, for God's people to be champions against injustice, to be advocates against injustice, to defend the foreigner, to defend the, the fatherless and the widow, those were the most vulnerable people groups in, in cases of injustice. And God would constantly um, rebuke His people for not caring about the injustices that were happening around them. And throughout history, although injustice ran rampant, God's people have also stood up against it. One example, uh, as Methodists, this is one of our favourite examples, lah. William Wilberforce, he's a, a key figure in Britain's battle to abolish slavery, uh, the slave trade at least, that was his part. And so Wilberforce was born into a privileged life, but the driving force behind his attempts to outlaw the slave trade was his Christian convictions, his Christian beliefs that the slave trade was unjust and immoral. And it just so happened that he was greatly influenced by early Methodists like John Wesley and, and George Whitfield. And so Wilberforce's campaign against the slave trade in Britain lasted about 20 years before a bill was finally passed to outlaw the trading of slaves. And so he fought the fight against slavery, slave trade at least, for at least 20 years. And then about 20 plus years later, then only all slaves in Britain were freed. The US would follow completely in about 20 plus years. Okay? But William Wilberforce was one of the key catalysts for that progression. Now sometimes God puts us in a position where we can bring his hope of justice to others. In this world of injustice, he places us in a unique position where we can bring influence and do something about that injustice. And so if you're in such a position, maybe not as a legislator, maybe not as a, a policymaker or somebody of great power, but even as something as simple as you see somebody being put down unfairly and then you encourage that person and you treat them kindly. Even something as simple as that, if you can stand up against injustice even in a small way, do so because that is what the Lord calls us to as a God of justice made in His image called to be like Him.
But even if we weren't aware of such opportunities to stand up against injustice, we can still hope in God's justice because His justice will always prevail. His justice will always prevail. And so this is the reason why God tells us not to take revenge, not because He is anti-justice and He's like, oh, somebody committed an injustice against you, it's fine, let them go, walk free. Uh, let them take advantage of you more. No, that's, God is not anti-justice. He will bring about perfect justice. But unlike our imperfect attempts at bringing justice, like taking revenge, uh, we tend to cause more problems in the process. He, uh, he, he carries out His perfect justice in His perfect timing. So, uh, a lot of times when it comes to trying to take matters in our own hands, especially through revenge, uh, it just makes things worse and messes things up worse instead. Uh, you know the John Wick movies, uh, for those of you who, who might be aware of... Uh, okay, Keanu Reeves la, plays this guy who used to be a mob hitman, something like that. Was he a hitman, assassin, secret service agent, double agent? I cannot remember. <laughs> I think it was a hitman, yeah. Um, and, and people break into his home, kill his dog, okay? He takes revenge by killing everybody, all the, the entire mob, uh, the entire gang, uh, mafia, whatever, that killed his dog. And then after that, the second movie, oh, they try and kill him. And then because of that, uh, he kills them. And then because of that, all the assassins in the world try and kill him. And so it's a never-ending cycle of death and destruction along the way, and justice really isn't carried out, right? So as Christians, we hope for not just some sort of justice, we hope for perfect justice, and we hope for this to be ultimately fulfilled in two ways. Firstly, it's already done at the cross. When Jesus died, He died to pay the price for all the injustices that have ever been committed by those who are forgiven of their sins, so those who place their faith in Him. And so we are assured that if we have ever committed an injustice against somebody, we are assured that our sin of injustice has been gaudimed at the cross. Right? Justice has been paid by His blood, and that is a perfect payment. So justice has been satisfied at the cross. But secondly, we are promised that when Jesus comes again, He will judge all who ever lived according to all that has ever been done or not done. And as a God of perfect justice, He will ensure that no trace of injustice remains. So when you're facing what seems like an injustice, maybe from your peers or your family, uh, an authority, uh, a people group, would you keep it in perspective that while it should not surprise us, we need to join God in His work against it. For God's people, there's never a time when there's no point standing up against a clear case of injustice. And even if it's beyond our immediate influence, we need to persevere in praying against injustice. We need to continue to trust God to ultimately carry out His perfect justice in His time. We always have hope 
with our God of justice. Let's pause for our first question for reflection and discussion within our SGs or families later on. What is one injustice you have experienced or witnessed? And how do you think God looks at it? So what's his perspective? Okay, and for the kids, what is something unfair that happened to you or someone you know? What do you think God thinks about it? Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this. Let's move on to our second point. And that is keeping God in the center of our response. Now, coming back to Paul, in order to truly understand what was going on in him when he was facing all these false accusations, suffering the beatings, going through the imprisonment, being put in chains, we need to look at Acts chapter 20, which is just shortly before he reaches Jerusalem. Okay, and... In S chapter 20, in, in this particular passage, it, in um, verses 22 to 24, uh, Paul is telling the Ephesian church leaders on his way back, so he's, he's finishing his third missionary journey, okay? So on his way back, um, he, he's telling them that the Holy Spirit was calling him back to Jerusalem and probably to face captivity and other difficulties. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him there. All he knows is prison and hardship is facing him. And so he had already been prompted by the Spirit that some of these things were going to happen. And knowing this, he goes obediently with the attitude of having his, his main aim still to accomplish the mission that God has given him. A bit like how Jesus 
knowing full well what awaited him at the cross, went ahead obediently, knowing that he had to finish the mission that God had given him, God the Father had given him. And so Paul has this mindset that his main aim is to preach the gospel, even if hardship, even if imprisonment was awaiting him, he would go. And so on one of his stops on the way to Jerusalem, he comes across a prophet who makes a prophecy that Paul will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. And so this is Paul's response. He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Because his friends, companions are there, they all, ah, this is going to happen to you, huh? uh, no. Uh, so, and, and then he says, I'm, not read, uh, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so this is his response. He's not just ready to be bound, to face hardship. He is ready to die for Jesus. And so this is already Paul's outlook, his mindset, his attitude, before he even sets foot in Jerusalem and he faces the mob, and he faces the soldiers. And so when he finally gets arrested, how he responds to it really is just consistent with who he already was. It's not that he had to fight a huge battle within him. How should I respond? Uh? Uh, what should I do? Uh? What should I say? He already had made up his mind about a few things uh, according to how the Spirit had been leading him. And so he responded in a way that was consistent with who he already was. Somebody who was centered, his life was centered on God and his purposes not centered on his own safety or his reputation. And so if Paul strikes you as somebody who is extremely courageous in the face of all dangers, this is the reason. This is how he can face all those fears and, and things that will cause people anxiety and worry so courageously. He trusted his life to God. He was more concerned with what God was calling him to do than he was about worrying or being afraid. And so that's why even when Paul is given an opportunity by the Roman commander to give a defense to the crowd, he doesn't defend himself. He shares his testimony. He talks about Jesus. That was the heart of Paul's identity. A part of our identity as Christians is to be more concerned with God's interests over our own self-interests. Now, of course, we all still struggle with this in one way or another. Our, our sinful nature, we have not yet escaped. And so we are still tempted always to be self-centered rather than God-centered. Uh, one very humbling thing that I've learned ever since I got married is that I am naturally quite a defensive person. Okay, and every time I, I admit that my, my wife... Uh, you know, goes, hallelujah, uh, no lah, <laughs> but, you know, in, in her, probably in her mind. Anyway, uh, I, I, I've learned, okay, not something that I knew or, or was aware of, but after I got married, I, I've learned I'm quite a defensive person. Uh, when my wife and I get into a disagreement, and I'm blessed that this doesn't happen very often, uh, I would naturally try to think up arguments, why am I right? Why am I not so wrong? 
uh, why am I justified for doing what I did or did not do? Why are other people also uh, responsible, not just me? And so naturally, I try to think up all these arguments. But one thing that helped me, one thing that helped us, was to remember that our marriage relationship was more important than my own need to be proven right. More important to me, all right, that our marriage relationship was more important to me than my own need to be proven right. And it's still not easy, okay, I confess. Sometimes when we have a disagreement, I stand there, I open my mouth, and I, I, I'm like a goldfish. And then I just, <clears throat> okay, remove myself from the situation, don't say anything. Um, but it gets easier because I know that our relationship benefits as a result. And so the same thing happens when we choose to be more concerned with God's interests and our relationship with God over our own self-interests. Whenever we come across an incident of injustice, when we hold His will and His purposes in focus and we, we remember that how we respond has an impact on not only our relationship with God, but also His purposes for us, then things like, uh, things like defending our own pride, things like proving how right we are, uh, we, we can put those things in their rightful place, which is secondary, less important. Now, don't misunderstand. There is a place for truth. Okay, there is a place for making the truth known. There's a place for clearing up misconceptions or misunderstandings. I'm not saying that we just, you know, uh, let, let people always forever misunderstand us. We're always the victim. But how much we prioritize these things depend on where they stand between God's interests and our own. And so if the need to, to, to you know, uh, share, share the truth, our, our perspective of the truth of the situation um, takes away from God's interests and it's more for our own self-interest, then it's something for us to reconsider, at least at that point of time. Now for Paul, his identity was found in Christ and so how he responded was how Christ would have responded and that was submission and obedience to the will of the Father and so he was through most of at least what is recorded in Scripture, he was more God-centered than he was self-centered. And since Paul had already been prompted by the Spirit that he would face such injustice in Jerusalem, he went along willingly, not because he was a doormat, not because he didn't know how to speak up for himself. If you read through the Bible, you know Paul is not like that. That is not his character, right? Uh, he went along with it because he wanted to see how else he could fulfill his task of preaching the gospel by being bound in Jerusalem like the Spirit said he would be. And so, in his mindset, he's being bound, he's being led in chains, and in his brain, he's still thinking, how is this an opportunity to share the gospel? Uh, how can God work through my situation? How can God work through these circumstances that have been created by my obedience, even though he was in chains, right? And so he was responding to injustice according to God's interest and not his own. 
Now, part of the challenge of responding to injustice is that very often our emotions get involved, right? And that's fine. It, we, we are created emotional beings, and anger as an emotion is not entirely wrong, right? There is an anger that is not sinful. There's an anger that is directed at the things that grieve God. So, evil, injustice, wickedness, getting angry at those things uh, is not wrong. It is also known as righteous indignation, okay? But because we are prone to sin, we can also get carried away and we can end up mixing that righteous indignation with sinful attitudes and motives and we add on things like hatred, spite, hypocrisy, unforgiveness, and we make it worse. And so that's why we need God's wisdom in how we respond. First uh, Peter chapter 3, 15 to 16 tells us, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So the context of this letter is, and the context of most of the New Testament letters, is persecution, right? Injustice. And so Peter's advice here is, uh, be prepared to, to give an answer. Okay, be wise in how you answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience. And so we, we, need to, we need God's wisdom in how we respond to situations of injustice, whether personal or something that we witness or something that we, we just know is not right in our world or in our nation or in our neighbourhood or family or whatever. We need to respond with gentleness. We need to respond with respect. We cannot give in to sinful attitudes, words or actions in the process. Remember, it's not just our pride or our reputation on the line. Because as Christians, we're all ambassadors for Christ. We represent the kingdom of God in how we behave and what we say when we identify as Christians. Since GE15 is right around the corner, let me say this. Many of us may feel some sort of righteous indignation for any abuse, uh, any injustice that has uh, been present in our nation, whether past or present. And so my, my challenge to you is just that before you respond, before you make your voice known, before you uh, perform your, your civil responsibility of going to vote, before you forward or post or reply something on social media, remember to do so with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. So whether you like it or not, you are representative of God's kingdom. And you know, eventually, when, when enough Christian voices are heard, people form an idea of who Christians are. Okay? And it is up to us whether that is a, an opinion that gives glory to God or an opinion that is, is, uh, shows that we are not different from this world. Okay, finally, our response must be centred in God's love. 
Uh, if you remember, this happened much earlier in Acts chapter 7, at the beginning of the great persecutions that would follow um, after the, the birth of the church. And so Stephen was stoned, right? And he was a victim of clear injustice. He faced great pain. He faced death by stoning. And yet how he responded echoed one of the last words of Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so forgiveness, uh, okay, just very quickly, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean allowing the injustice to happen again. Uh, wisdom also needs to guide us on whether we should allow the injustice to be repeated. Trust, reconciliation is the subject of a larger message lah, on forgiveness. Okay, uh, But even so, we need to be careful that we don't let bitterness and resentment take root in us when we experience or witness injustice. Even if our, what drives us is righteous indignation, we have to be very careful that we don't allow unforgiveness to take root in us. Paul has this advice to the Ephesians shortly after. Um, so, so in this passage, he refers to the Gentiles in Ephesus. Okay, he actually mentions them in, in Ephesians chapter 4. And he, he tells the Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So, he mentions the Gentile Ephesians shortly before this. And so, you, you would imagine that surely he has not forgotten uh, how the Gentile Ephesians had stirred up a riot against him in that city, right? How they were out to, to they were calling for his death. Yet, he calls for forgiveness. And his rationale, not because it's the right thing to do or be the bigger person, his rationale is because God forgave us and loved us first. And so this is even more pertinent for Paul because he himself was a persecutor of the innocent. He was a committer of injustices. And so when we remember that we ourselves, we were sinners, we have perpetrated injustices knowingly, unknowingly, uh, unknowingly uh, and, and we are, ourselves are not perfect, we need to remember that God forgave us first and loved us first. And so only love for our en enemies like how God loved us while we were still His enemies. Only that sort of love can inspire a response that looks at God instead of the pain and the grief of the injustice. Let's look at our second and final question for today. How do you typically respond to injustice? So, one incident of injustice, maybe recently, how would you have responded? Uh, what would help you to make your response more God-centered? And for the kids, what do you usually say or do when something is unfair? What can you say or do about it that will make God happier? Okay, two minutes.
Therefore, in conclusion, I'd like you to know that disciples of Jesus keep God at the centre of their response towards injustice. So we look at all forms of injustice through His eternal perspective. We remember our God of justice, perfect justice, will make all things right in the end. I'd like you to be God-centred in your motives when responding to injustice. Be more interested in, be more concerned for God's interests rather than your own. And do respond to injustice wisely and lovingly. Be gentle, respectful, don't add to the wrongdoing. Forgive as Christ forgave you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, may I invite you to stand for the invitation to the Lord's table? Christ our Lord invites to His table all who love Him and earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. You may be seated. Those at home, you may choose to take a position of humility. Let's pray this prayer of confession and pardon together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbours. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's spend some moments in quiet confession and repentance before the Lord. Hear the good news, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And that proves God's love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. May I invite you at this time to just uh, stand where you are, just turn around, look at one another, and offer each other signs of God's peace, reconciliation, and love. The peace of the Lord be with you.
and as forgiven and reconciled people, let us offer ourselves and our gifts to God. The second offering will be collected now. You may proceed down through the center aisle. Uh, remember to keep your social, social distancing and uh, return through the side aisle. Those who choose to contribute online, you can uh, bank into the Maybank account number on the screen. The great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so, with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn together. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death and resurrection, you gave birth to your church delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, he gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, 
one with each other, and one in ministry to all the worlds until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honour and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Friends, the Lord's table is open and all who have been baptized, including infants uh, who have been baptized and repent of their sins, please do follow the directions of the ushers. Come forward. Please um, remember to keep some space. If you see that the center aisle is too congested, you can wait a bit before coming forward, okay? So come down through the center, uh, take the elements, hold on to it. We will take it together. Return to your seats through the side.
For those joining us for the first time, there are two layers. The transparent layer is to access the bread. You partake together the body of our Lord Jesus Christ given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Eat and remember Christ who died for you. Amen. And the blood of Christ poured out upon the cross for us. Drink, be thankful. Amen. Please hang on to your container. Dispose on the way out. Friends, even at the Lord's table, we are reminded of the justice carried out upon the cross and also the ultimate justice that will come when Jesus comes again. And so let us sing in response. Let's stand. Let's sing in response and let's surrender all, all our concerns, our worries, and all that we have including our ability to stand up for injustice. Let's surrender it all to Him.
Lord, we surrender. We surrender all injustices. We surrender our response to injustice. We surrender the difficulties, the sufferings, the persecutions that come with being holy in this sinful world. We surrender it all to you, Lord. Lord, we trust that you are our God of perfect justice. We trust that you will right all wrongs in the ultimate, uh, upon ultimate judgment. And Lord, we leave it to you. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to inspire us. You help us to take notice of where you are positioning us to be your agents of justice, your agents, your co-workers and co-laborers in the battle against injustices. Lord, give us the courage, give us the strength, give us the compassion. Help us, Lord, to do all this with gentleness, respect, and keep keeping our conscience clear in your sight. Lord, we pray that our role of being peacemakers and, and justice bringers within our homes, within our neighbourhoods, within our nation. Lord, would you help us to take this role seriously? Thank you. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus, who dismisses us, dismisses us with his blessing, that the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated.